Well, welcome to the Work Ecosystem Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs make more and work less using systems. And I'm your host, Josh Bonger. And today I've got a very special guest. We've got Todd Palmer here. Todd is a renowned thought leader, CEO, executive coach, and author who is committed to improving lives. As a successful entrepreneur and business owner himself, he works with both individuals and companies to support corporate growth, foster business startups, and guide leaders in the areas of talent management, workforce planning, and organizational development. As a CEO of a six-time Inc. 5000 company, Todd knows the struggles that businesses face around the areas of people, cash, strategy, and execution. Through his firm, Extraordinary Advisors, Todd is able to guide leaders into programs of sustained profitability. All right, Todd, so before we get started, I hammer you with questions. Why don't you start off by telling us all your business background? How did you get into this line of work? Well, you know, I started my first company when I was 27 years old. And I, my business plan required $140,000 in capital. And, you know, everybody wants to give a 27-year-old $150,000. Uh, so I found a friend of mine at the time who, you know, was willing to, and he tells a story now. He goes, I didn't bet on your business plan. I bet on you, which is so common nowadays that people bet on the talent, not necessarily on the idea. And so he gave me $15,000. And I gave me about a 90-day runway to try and make that business work. And it was uh, by day 72, we actually turned a profit. It was back in 1997, so the country's it was an employment company, diversified staffing, and the economy was very similar to what it is today. I didn't know how good it was that you know we were. If you basically, if I could find a body, I could get the body placed. And I used to drive people to work. I set up a busing company. I did all this this crazy stuff uh, just because someone believed in me. So I I literally got into the business because I found out I wasn't really a very good employee. I had too many ideas. I had too many suggestions, and I just had that itch that I just had to do it. So I dialed back my expectations. I reduced that goal, ask about from 140,000 and I got 15 grand and started off from there. Wow. So how did your first company go? I mean, from there, I mean, you've been, I mean, you've been on the Inc. Uh, 5,000 list and you've grown. Well, how did you get from there? Was it the same company? That you it's the same, same company. Still exists today. Still exists today. It's a different version of it. We were all, you know, we were temporary help back in those days. Now we do uh High-end skilled trade manufacturing recruiting. We just do a very small niche, but much better margins, much less hassle. <laughs> yeah. So do you still um, run that business while you do your executive coaching, training, and speaking? Or do you have you gotten sold off that company? You know, it's it's I'm kind of in an interesting phase right now. I still own that business, but as you talk about, like with your book, we put systems in place, a lot of systems. So the business really runs itself. It's more of a combination of a, a strong systems in place. I have a very tenured team. My average employee has, is ten, has been with me for 10 years, which is rare in the recruiting space. But also we kind of adopted a modified version of holacracy where there's a lot of self-accountability, self, self-sufficiency to the system. We don't have a physical location anymore. Everybody now works from home. So we meet like we're meeting right now. And it's gone really, really well. And now we're just trying to figure out what the next few years are going to look like. Do we want to, you know, keep it at it as it is? Do we want to grow it? Do we want to possibly spin it off and sell it? We're in that exploratory phase right now. That's very cool. Well, good. And you've been able to figure out how to go from working in the business, your whole life, like driving the bus, like you said, to where you are now. So that'll be fun to, uh, to explore. Now, before we got on the, the call, you mentioned that you had like a pretty a big dip in 2006 and maybe that led up to it. And then you were kind of in the hole and you're able to get out of that. Can you share how that happened? Because I think that's a place that a lot of entrepreneurs find themselves in, in a hole where they're just stuck. Sure. So how did you overcome that? 
Uh, well, I, so the, the, the reality is I'm the person who uh, was a big contributor to getting the company in the hole. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a very hard time looking in the mirror and recognizing that. And I was in denial for a really long time. 2004, things weren't going so good. 2005, things were not going so good. And by 2006, things were really in bad shape. And I was just steeped in denial. I, I not only denied it was happening, I suffered from imposter syndrome because when I realized it was happening, I thought I had to fix everything. I thought I had to have all the answers. I thought you know, I was the be all and do all of the business, which wasn't true, but it was a story I was telling myself. And so in 2006, the company was $600,000 in debt. We were about two months away from running out of all of our cash. And I reached out and for the first time in almost 10 years being in business, I asked for help and I hired my first coach. And I've had a coach in my personal life and in my business life since 2006 and has changed the game for me completely. He helped me put in the proper systems, the, prop, the proper people, but also the proper mindset for me as the entrepreneur to recognize I didn't have to have all the answers, that there were a lot of things I was doing right, but to continue to beat myself up for the things I wasn't doing right was counterproductive. And one of the things we had to really work through is we had a very toxic culture. We had the wrong, we didn't just have the wrong people in the wrong seats in the bus, we had the wrong people on the bus totally. So uh, walked in September 9th, 2006, fired the entire company changed the operating model, changed how we did billing, changed how we did pricing, changed who we marketed to. And then voila, through the, through the overnight success of suffering and misery, we made the Inc. 5000 six times. It's one of America's fastest growing companies. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Well, so how do you, because that, that takes some courage. And there are some companies I'm working with right now that kind of are at a, a sticking point right now. How did you muster up the courage to make that kind of a shift uh, in that situation? So one of the, the exercises the coach had me do was to figure out what my core values were as the entrepreneur. Who, who was I? And I thought I knew and thought I had an idea of what that was all about. But really, when I took a look at my core values as, a, as, a, as an executive, and the core values not only written on the wall of the company that were being followed, but also those that weren't being followed, there was a big gap. And it was really when I took a look, long, hard look at, you know, this is who the company is. This is who I aspire the company to be, and this is who I am as the leader and found out those people didn't meet those core values, then the decision was pretty easy. Now, the execution is always the hard part, but once I figured out that, you know, this is where we want to go, this, I mean, that's often what leadership is about. Sometimes a leader doesn't know what direction we're going to go. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put our, a stake in the ground. We're going to walk north. I'm not sure, you know, if we're going to get there in two days, five days, or 10 days, but we're going to head that way. Trust me, we're going to get through because I, I have a belief that this is the right way to go. And that's what I did. I, I believe in the processes that we were putting in place against the, re the resistance I was getting. I, I believed in how we we're going to move the model from point A to point B. And, and honestly, what I really did is I plugged into the coach's confidence in me as a leader and the coach's confidence in the plan. He had been doing this for 30 years. He's like, I believe in what you're doing. I believe in why you're doing the why you're doing the way you're doing it. And I believe in you individually. So on your crummy days, when you don't feel like getting out of bed, I was, I was suffering from that. When on days you don't feel like picking up the phone to make a sales call, the days you know, call me, text me, stay engaged. We went through a, about a two month period. We were communicating almost on a daily basis. Hmm. That's how invested he was in with me. And so now, like with my extraordinary advisors practice, that's what I do with my clients. They plug into that confidence I have in them and we drive their businesses to new levels. Wow, that's amazing. And I think there's an element of humility that it goes into it as well in terms of picking out a coach. A lot of people are, are they don't really want to admit that they have, have a need. And so they just aren't willing to, to go that level. 
but it's not made a huge difference in you. That, that's amazing. It's, well, it, it really has. It's interesting. I don't know if your viewers can see, well, I'm a, kind of a big baseball nerd. I actually still play competitive baseball and I have no problem telling everybody I'm 50 years old. Mm -hmm. So you think, why would a 50 year old guy still play baseball? That's a podcast for a different day. But I, if I'm going to play it, I want to play it well. So I have a hitting coach. So I go and this guy works with like this 10 year old before me in my session. Then he works with me. And he works with us differently, but I want to be better at what I do. So I've recognized that there's such a, such a power of community. You know, I'm, I'm part of EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization. There's, you can get a connection in that community. You can get mentors and you know, pseudo coaches and a, that, that unpaid board of advisors that way. But the entrepreneur, I found for me, by being an entrepreneur alone, I was an entrepreneur at risk. And I didn't know what I didn't know until someone else pointed out to me or the marketplace pointed it out to me. So I think there's such a huge value in our lives that, you know, we, we know a lot. We're smart people and now we have Google and we can ask it anything and Alexa can tell us what this is and Siri can tell us what that is. But we need a tribe of people not only to, to raise a business sometimes, but also to even raise a family. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Don't do it alone. Very risky. Don't do it, don't do it alone. Well, and that's what I did. And it got me, into a, got me into some pretty bad spots. Yeah, definitely. So... So for those people out there who do have, let's just say, B-level staff and C-level staff, and they have this vision about where they want to go, and they're just like, wow, okay, so my current team is not going to get there, what would you recommend? Would you recommend trying to push the team along, or do, or do you have to let them go? Or what, what do you kind of do when you're in that situation? Because I think a lot of people, it's kind of a long question, but they, get, they grow their business, and they realize their business is kind of a B and C business. The quality is B and C. The staff is B and C. And everything is kind of just substandard. And they're just like, well, now how do I say, hey, I want to be A plus going forward? Like, where do you where do you begin to make that shift? Well, I think you have to define what A plus looks like for you. I think that's the first thing is what's important to you. I had, I had a client who went through the exact same thing. He was saying, oh, I want to grow my business from from point A to point B. And he goes, I want to get over the million dollar threshold. He was just running around seven hundred thousand. And I said, why do you want to do it? He goes, well, I want to make more money. I said, great, I'm a capitalist. Sounds great to me. We took a look at his team and like. His team was very much in the mindset of, yeah, let's just not push this too hard. And he's like, no, let's pour gasoline on it. But he would acquiesce and acquiesce and acquiesce. I said, well, so you're out of your, your values, what you want for the business as the founder, as the leader, as the guy paying the bills is to the left. What your team, your leadership team wants is to the right. So when we got our engagement started, I said, are you going to be comfortable that you may lose half your leadership team in the first six months and possibly all of them within the first year? And, and he said, why would that happen? I said, you want to you pour gasoline on something that's just kind of humming along. Well, they're used to humming along. They may not want to go with that for that ride. Mm -hmm. And he said, I am. And we anchored that into why he wanted that. And why he wanted that was two things. He wanted to create work-life integration. He wanted to make more, more money, but also have more free time. And in order to do both, he needed a stronger leadership team. Mm -hmm. So we anchored that into what he wanted. And within, not only within, a year, within four months, his entire leadership team had quit, and he'd replaced them with people who bought into his vision. So now, we've moved his margin from single-digit numbers to over 40% in less than 12 months because he followed his vision. And we anchored that vision into what his core values were and why he wanted that. And his drivers are changed, his, his leadership team has changed, and he's living proof that in under a year, you can make a huge impact and a huge change in your business. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Now, I, um, I want to dig into this core values thing because, you know, years ago when I first started business consulting, 10 years ago, I didn't really believe in this core values thing. You know, we're going to be kind or honest or hardworking. 
And now as I've worked with more clients and around the world, I see the power of it. But from your perspective, and you make core values for other companies, how do you create ones that are actually going to actually make you more money? You know, not just ones that make you feel good, but how do you make sure. values that make you more money? And once you write them down, how do you make sure they actually work? You know, actually can use them. Sure. Especially with companies that are, have been around for a while, or they do have a leadership team that's going to be intact. The exercise I put them through is I had them start telling me some of their best stories. Tell me, tell me a story about your biggest sales success. Tell me about, hey, every company's had problems. There's no shame in having problems. How did you overcome that? How did you, what did you do? And how did you handle this? And I, and I start watching for patterns. And then we take a break and then I'll talk to them about the core values. And I'll say, okay, everybody independently write down what you think the five core values of the business are. And they'll do that. We'll put them on a board under categories and we'll start lining them up. And then what we'll do is it, it's only a core value if the core value can be told through a story. So a construction company that, that I knew of was really all about quality. They, want, you know, they, wanted, to they wanted to charge a premium price, for them, but they could guarantee they were going to do quality work on a high, high level. And I said to the owner, I said, you know, and he, they were struggling coming up with a way to articulate. And I said, well, everybody talks about quality. I mean, that's, I go, there's nothing sexy about that. I go, tell me how you're going to do it. So tell us a story about how he took his mom to his very first new build from the ground up. And she was so impressed about the, the cleanliness of the space and how it looked so good. And he goes, yeah, I just kept making my mama proud. I just kept making my mama proud. I said, that's it. That's your core value. Your core value is we make mama proud and here's how we do it. So when you go to talk to a, a family to have them build, you build their home, when you go to do something like that, tell them that story. So now in their, their office, I love it. They have their five core values and the top one is make mama proud. <laughs> I love that. Well, just to sidetrack, I had a client, same thing. They sold digital products and they weren't very good and they wanted to raise the value. And they said, okay, sell products so good, we sell them to our cousin or something like that. So it was yeah. like, okay, we're gonna make digital products that we you know, sell on Thanksgiving dinner to our cousins. And so as long as the products are past the cousin test, they're good. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 then, but then what happens is then you start making the decisions to hire people in the interview process because they can get the cousin test story or they had their own you know, brother or sister test or parent. I mean, and, and then so once the core values are established, you build your interview questions off of those. Mm -hmm. We do a whole process where we work with companies to hire, hire for DNA, don't hire for resume. Unless you really need someone with a very finite skill set. So you're going to hire an accountant. Yes, they have to have an accounting background or a CPA degree. Great. I totally get it. Get the, get the degree in place, but then hire, you know, bring in five CPAs and hire the one that matches your core values. Mm -hmm. Because the worst thing you can have, and I, I had this happen in a company, is you got 20 people on a team. You got 19 of them sitting there going in one direction. And you got one Daryl Downer or Debbie Downer over here complaining and not following on the process because they hired out of desperation for a specific skill set. And it just creates a toxicity and a cancer. You know, 19 people want to have a cultural day out that the boss is going to pay for at an event. And Debbie Downer says, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. It, 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 it's like, well, are you part of the team or not? Because it's the team, it's 20 people rowing the boat in one direction is much, much more successful than one guy trying to do the work of 20 people going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. hmm. So what about, I got a lot of questions on hiring. I think we'll change gear, gears to the hiring because I know this is your background. You've got a book on hiring. You've got a hiring company. What are the, uh, the secrets to successful recruiting? Is there like a, a method that you think most entrepreneurs don't know about, but they should actually be following? You know, I do. And I think the entrepreneurs need to recognize and realize this, that it is a candidate-driven market. 
there are five jobs for every one candidate. So typically what we see happen, especially with the recruiting business, is we'll see somebody interview somebody, say on a client will interview a candidate on a Monday. We'll get feedback on Tuesday. Okay, we're gonna make them an offer. Great, do you have your offer ready? We're gonna, uh, I've gotta get management approval. Well, okay, well, when are you gonna get that? Well, he's on vacation for two weeks. Like, listen, the candidate's gonna be gone. I'm not gonna place him, he's just gonna be gone. And they get so frustrated. So I think that the, the smartest hiring companies now, the people who need the talent, have to move at lightning speed. Prudently, but with a sense of urgency. They have to recognize that it's a candidate-driven market. So if you've got a rock star sitting in your office, then how are you going to make sure that they don't leave without an offer? Especially for small businesses. You've got somebody like, I've got to have this person right now. Then you find a way to make it happen. Get them locked in in the next steps. Get them locked in a new process. Recognize that millennials work differently than Gen X or baby boomers. And they work differently in a couple of ways. They're willing to take sometimes less money for more flexibility and freedom, which can mean they, they come in at, at different times. You're more focused on their work product than the hours they put in. Mm -hmm. they you're willing to let them work remotely on occasion. You're willing, maybe they, you can't always give them as much vacation time as they want, but you're willing to give them unlimited, uncompensated PTO. There's a lot of different ways to approach it. And it's those companies that have a, a sense of curiosity on how to set it. If they treat the, the interviewee as they would treat their most valuable customer, they're going to get a whole lot more people. And I, I think the real secret is, and I, and I, and I tell this, in fact, I just, I'm doing a speech this year, the same speech next year in Disney. They're bringing me down to talk about the flip and how hiring has shifted in the last 10 years and how it's going to stay this way. Is if you act like you're doing the candidate a favor to bring them in for an interview and to offer them a job, you've already lost them. It's the candidates that are in charge. And if you can recognize that, you, you groom them, you treat them, you woo them like you would your favorite customer and, and recognize that they have plenty of options and you honestly need them just as much as they need you. It's not, the, it's not like it was coming out of the recession in 09. You'll do a whole lot better and recognize that it's a candidate-driven market, not a customer, or not a um, company-driven market. And then once you hire, I know you're, you're right about this as well, once you, you do hire somebody, you bring them on, what do you do the first few days or months to really get them to buy into your core values and become an, an asset right away? Well, I think you got to know, again, know what your core values are. So say, say your core values, for example, are uh, we're a family-focused family company. Your family is important to us. I always say to my clients, kind of that family mentality, and not everybody does, and that's okay. But if you do have that mindset, find out in the interview, if you're, so you're going to hire Bob, the sales guy. Hey, Bob, you know, can you tell me a little bit about your family background? It's a, it's a generic question. doesn't violate any EEOCs or anything like that. You know, you know, I'm a, you know, I've been married for 10 years. i got two kids, blah, blah, blah. Oh, wow. So he's volunteered that he's married. Great. You know, just out of curiosity, what do you and your wife do for fun? Oh, our favorite restaurant is, I'm going to make this up on the spot here. Our favorite restaurant is Olive Garden. And, you know, we like to go to the Olive Garden and we like to go to movies. Perfect. The first day Bob shows up for work, you have a big gift basket waiting for him and a big banner, welcome to the company with all of his favorite, you know, office snacks, whether it's almonds and coffee or whatever. What the savvy company will do is they'll send home a gift card that arrives the day his first day. Friday, Friday is on us where you're going, we've got you set up to go to the Olive Garden and you're going to the movies. Because it meant you're bringing the family together. So when you ask Bob, hey, can you go out of town next weekend to handle a company issue? 
the family's already bought in, hey, they took care of us. Yeah, go ahead. We totally, he's not going to get that same kind of pushback and static. So they're doing the upfront investment in the family, speaking their core values, offering them something of tangible value. You know, I've had, I've had clients that are, I got a client who's a big wine guy. He always makes sure he finds out the wife's favorite bottle of wine and sends that to the house with a, with a dozen flowers for her first day. And so when she, she doesn't have to ask him how his first day was, she can tell him, hey, yeah, I'm sure they were great to you. But look what they sent to me. That stuff gets everybody bought in together. Hmm. Simple things. I can see how that makes a big difference. Instead of treating your employee like a, a number, actually right. like a person. No, that, well, because the reality is your number one source for your next employee is your current employee. People will, people want to work with their friends. And if they like, you know, it's like a referral. We give referrals to people. I'm going to give you a referral. I'm going to refer you somebody that is going to make me look good. I'm not going to refer you somebody who's going to make you a waste of your time and make me look like an idiot. Same with employees. The other flip side is recruiters. We know this. The first question if I were to cold call or get a hold of you through LinkedIn or on your phone is, Hey, are you looking for a new job? No, no, I'm good where I'm at. All right. Well, hey, just curious. What kind of boss do you work for? Well, my boss is kind of an idiot. He's a jerk, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now I got you. Because the number one reason people leave a job isn't the pay, it isn't the drive, and it isn't the work. It's their immediate supervisor. Hmm. So if you're not being a good boss, then you're going to be recruiting a lot in your life. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Okay. Well, that, that's great. Well, so a um, couple other quick questions. KPIs, I wanted to get into that because I think that's a big part of um, successfully managing your team. And you mentioned, uh, you know, you got the millennials and the baby boomers and the different generations. Are there different KPIs that you would use for different generations or are they pretty much the same? You know, I, I think the KPIs, the differences between the KPIs tie into what the job duties are mm -hmm. and, and that, that mutually negotiated conversation. I, um, I think it's really important as a leader for you to treat your employees as much as individuals as possible. And actually, I, I learned this um, being the big baseball guy that I am. I actually had an opportunity one time to meet Jim Leland when he managed the Detroit Tigers. And I only had one question for him because like, Jim Leland, you're kind of a big deal. And hey, so Jim, you got 25 guys in the locker room. I said, I said, I, what I said to him, I said, you have 25 millionaires in the locker room. And then you got some guy making 10 million a year and one guy making 1 million a year, but they're still millionaires. So they're doing quite well. I said, how do you manage that? How do you handle all the egos and all the personalities? He goes, oh, that's easy. I'm like, I think like the skies are going to open up. I'm going to like the, the pearls of wisdom are going to stream down upon me. He's like, oh, that's easy. You manage them 25, you manage them all the same. You manage them 25 different ways. Shook my hand and walked away. I'm like, it's so simple, but so brilliant. So if you've got 25 employees, the great manager figures out what the KPIs are for the job. So say you've got five people in sales. You might have some universal KPIs, whether it's an activity metric or a, but then you figure out what the individual KPIs are for person number one, number two, number three, number four. And then you manage to all of those. So not only do you have the overall corporate goals tied in, but you also have the personal goals of that individual taken into consideration. So then you've got them hooked. Hmm. Okay. So individual performance plan and then department, department KPIs as well. Right. It, uh, it all has to flow back up. Oh, cool. No, I like that a lot. Well, big just because of the time, and I know it's it's the, almost the weekend over there. Why don't you leave us with uh, you know the kind of an answer to a question I didn't ask you? So, what's one thing that you think small business owners really need to hear from you? And I just didn't ask you the question the question yet. Well, and when I when I think of that, I think of the one thing I, as a small business owner in my you know late twenties and early thirties, I wish someone would have taught me, and and I do this a lot with my clients. It's revenue is great, nothing wrong with revenue, but it's really all about the margin. I met these two guys, gosh, these guys were, it's been like 10 years ago. It was a two-person company. 
in an apartment in Cleveland, Ohio. And I said, you know, I was talking to him at a, at a function. They go, yeah, we do about $800,000 in revenue. I'm like, not too, not too bad for two guys living in an apartment. Go, Would you mind telling me how much you make? Oh, our margins are 50%. So we take home about $400,000 to $200,000 a piece. We have no, and he goes, we have no employees. We have no, I'm like, I want to work for you. You're 10 times smarter than me. Because they knew that the margin was the most important thing. Huh. It, there's so many people who can, you can have a great, I mean, the reality is this. Only 4.3% of all businesses ever reach a million dollars in revenue. It's a very small number. Hmm. So if you keep in mind that it's, I would rather have an $800,000 company with $400,000 margins than like being in the staffing space where you have a $1 million company and you have really weak margins. It's just, it's a margins are where it's at. That, that's what I think anybody listening today, if they can take that away, how do you goose that margin up? More power to you. Yeah, I think the other big thing with margin, that's a great, great point, is that when you have margin, you can start to make more creative solutions like yes. the buying the wine or whatever. You can, you know, the Olive Garden, the gift certificates, but you can make those kind of choices when you have margins. When the margins are really tight, that's when you're stuck. Yeah. You, you can't experiment with things. Yeah. So if you have cash, if you have cash, cash is king, and cash can also equal courage. Yeah, definitely. Well, good. Well, so, so uh, Tyler, where can people find you if they want more information about what you do? Uh, where, where do they go? So yeah, anybody who wants to find me, I'm really easy to find. I'm at extraordinaryadvisors.com. Anybody goes on the contact me page there and mentions they heard me on your show today. I'm happy to give you a half hour of my time for free. Just want to, uh, as a gratitude expression for all the people in my life who've helped me to get to where I'm at, including my first coach back in 2006. It's kind of that pay it forward thought process. So, and I'm, and I'm happy to talk with you about margins. I'm happy to talk about hiring or even you know, the, the, mantra, the mindset of the entrepreneur, whatever you guys want to talk about. I'm happy to give you 30 minutes of my time. All they have to do is mention where they heard you. Heard okay. All right. Well, very good. Well, Todd, I appreciate you making the time uh, for us on this Friday afternoon. I learned a lot. This has been an inspiring story. Hopefully, to all you listening, watching the podcast, hopefully it helps you have the courage to make your vision and your goals a reality, knowing that if you're bold and take, the, you know, take some steps, you can really, just like Todd did, make a massive improvement in your life. And also I wanted to mention before we sign off today that we are giving away a free copy of Sam Carpenter's book right there behind me, uh, Work the System. If you give us a review either on uh, Facebook or YouTube or anywhere else you see this, um, let us know. Send us an email at info at workthesystem.com and we'll be drawing a winner uh, this week and each week giving a book to you. So make sure to do that, info at workthesystem.com. And I will see you all next week. Thanks again, Todd. Take care.